Welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. My name is Dave Wright, co-founder and editor of Player Development Project. PDP is a website for coaches who are committed to learning, and we provide a huge library of resources which consists of cutting-edge insights from the world's most innovative player developers, coach educators, and researchers. If you want to learn from the best and join a community of like-minded coaches, then check out playerdevelopmentproject.com. On this week's Player Development Project podcast, we're joined by one of our expert contributors from the PDP Network. Hi everyone, welcome to another Player Development Project Masterclass discussion. Really pleased to be joined by Academy Manager at AFC Wimbledon, Jeremy Sawyer. Jeremy, how are you? I'm very well, Dave. How are you, mate? You okay? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for joining us and I appreciate no your time on this call. Uh, you've got a great resource going, mate, so it's a privilege to be on, mate. I oh, really appreciate it, really appreciate it. So look, let's let's kick things off with a little background on yourself. And can you give us a bit of insight into your personal coaching journey and how you've ended up as an Academy Manager at AFC Wimbledon? Yeah, um, the majority of my background is AFC Wimbledon, to be honest with you. Um, going way, way back, I wasn't very good at school. I was okay, just not the academic, if I'm honest. Uh, dyslexic, failed the A-levels, distracted by girls, music, drink, all the rest of it. Went into um, different industries, started working in uh, a variety of industries, IT. I worked in uh, business development. Um, so I ended up actually, uh, when all my peers were at university, just going straight into the working world and, and kind of uh, acquiring, I suppose, a variety of skills and becoming a bit of a jack of all trades, which was good. Um, and starting to understand how businesses worked and I suppose seeing myself as a bit of an entrepreneur, really. Um, always had two passions: football, obviously. My dad's Dutch, so I, I grew up on um, I grew up on uh, football from from uh, uh, the Netherlands, uh, watching uh, Johan Cruyff on dodgy old VHSs and uh, Ajax of the early nineties and stuff like that. And I always enjoyed uh, seeing people fulfil their potential, I suppose. And that was the, the two big passions, football and, and uh, seeing people fulfil their potential. So anyway, uh, I suppose mid-20s, I started my own company, my own coaching company. Uh, and it went from there, really. I was self-employed. I set that up. It was over in southwest London. Uh, it was semi-successful. Um, uh, it got me into the door of a few other places. I had people like Crystal Palace on the phone to me trying to get young talent from my coaching company, which allowed me to get a foot in the door in their organization. Uh, so I ended up volunteering my time in their pre-academy and then eventually working part-time in their foundation phase, which is obviously great for me. Uh, at the same time, um, I'm sure you recognize as coaches where we end up when we're part-time, end up working for anybody and everybody. Uh, so I had a lot of different hats and a lot of different uh, changes of uniform in my car. I was also working for Curva Coaching, who you're probably familiar with as well. And that's way back when now. Um, and yeah, essentially one of the gigs I had was working with AFC Wimbledon's under eight at the time, which was parent managed. It was um, completely voluntary on their part. They trained once a week. All the kids turned up in Chelsea and Arsenal shirts. And I was just their skills coach. Um, so essentially it went from there, really. And, and I ended up um, applying what I was learning at Crystal Palace, which was great. I had a really strong and dominant coach there who I learned lots of good things, a few bad things. And I ended up applying it at Wimbledon because I had my own platform there. Um, and as Wimbledon, as you probably know, uh, went through the leagues and uh, progressed upwards, I ended up um, getting more responsibility there because I suppose I was doing a good job. Mm. Um, and I was ended up setting up what was called the Junior Academy at the time. It was essentially the under sevens to under elevens foundation phase. That was all when it was grassroots. You got to bear in mind this wasn't when it was an academy at all. So we, uh, you know, we were charging parents for training and you know 
we ended up I ended up uh, trying to replicate what Palace were doing in terms of an academy set up at Wimbledon. And then I suppose luckily enough, uh, although I did work my ass off, um, you know, the, the club ended up getting into the Football League. That was 2011. So that was all, all very, very quickly. And then we weren't expecting to be in the Football League at such a um, so soon. Mm. What ended up happening, we had six weeks during that summer to turn uh, a grassroots youth set up into a centre of excellence as per Football League rules and all the rest of it. So we managed to do that. We gave all the boys in the academy a contract that were playing grassroots football in the local leagues. Um, and we went from there, really. And I've probably had um, every title that you can imagine under the sun. Um, head of coaching, operations manager, centre excellence manager. <laughs> <laughs> They've all been there. We've chopped and changed. Uh, and eventually, EPPP came in um, and our first audit was in 2013. Um, and all the sort of pieces fell in place, I suppose, really. And I became academy manager because that was suited my skill set. Um, and I suppose from there, really, I've I've done less and less coaching. If I'm mm. honest, it's it's you know I've become a manager. I've sat behind one of these things, a laptop, and I've coordinated <laughs> and I've hired and I've fired, and we've we've, we've tried to sort of uh, have a long term overview of it. I suppose really, but yeah, I'm a little disconnected from the coaching. If I'm honest, Dave, I've, I've okay. become more of a su- supply teacher. You know, yeah. When I, when I'm needed, I drop in and and I try and develop coaches and work with them and stuff like that. You know, so. Uh, it's been an interesting journey for me because obviously I set out as a coach um, and in sort of, I don't know, 2013-14 when the EPPP came in, that pretty much halted and, and I became a manager and I've, I suppose I've been learning a lot about that side of things, which has been good for my own skill set, you know. Fantastic. Well, certainly a very interesting journey and, and just in terms of your own um, personal development when you were coaching and spending more time on the grass, were there any particular mentors that really stood out to you? Yeah, um, I had a coach at Crystal Palace called Danny O'Callaghan. I don't, I'm not sure he's in the game anymore. I've lost contact with him. Really dominant guy. Very. Um, I, I think if people watch him from the outside, they'd probably go, what is this lunatic doing? But, <laughs> but, but the way the boys played for him was just incredible, and it, it blew me away. I spent a lot of time uh, when I was at Palace, this is volunteering my time, really, to, to be around him mm. and, and listen to him and take some of the good things get rid of some of the things I thought, no, no, that's just, you know, gone too far and working over at Palace, uh, working over at Wimbledon and and, and applying it myself. I also had Paul Holder there, who you'll probably know, uh, who was at Palace for a little while. And then he moved away while I was still there. So I ended up sort of following him a little bit as much as possible and leaning on him for uh, advice and mentorship as I was uh, setting up Wimbledon. And that that was invaluable because I I really look up to the guy. I think he's got some uh, pretty outside the box thinking and, yeah. and uh, I really look up to him. So I suppose those two were, in terms of coaching, they were my sort of two main people that I, uh, I worked towards in my own sort of uh, uh, beginning of my own uh, development up uh, up an elite pathway, I suppose you'd say. Yeah, fantastic. And I think obviously uh, I've, I've been lucky enough to interview a few people who have uh, mentioned Paul's name. So obviously he's been around the traps a while and influenced plenty of coaches. Mm. So you mentioned or you referred to the idea of you know Wimbledon being in non-league football. Now many people know the story, but many might not. And it's been a fantastic story, I think, from 2002-2003 through to where the club is now currently in mm. League One. Can you give mm. us a little bit of background on the rise of the club? And, and obviously, you've been there right through the journey, um, which is pretty mm. exciting. How, how's that looked from being within it? Yeah, um, yeah, I've, I've been privileged, I suppose, actually. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I'm actually not a, a Wimbledon fan, first and foremost, um, <laughs> but I have become one, you know, and then the culture of the club's unique. Uh, I think it's worth saying, actually, before 2002, the backstory to that is that it was the underdog way before that. In the 70s, it actually rose through the league's before it even did it in 2002 obviously mm. so it had that culture about it already so although it all went tits up essentially in uh, the late 90s and, and the, the fans obviously reformed 2002 
Um, they already had it in their blood. They already had that underdog punching above their weight stuff in their blood. That was their culture. So if there was any club for it to happen to, Wimbledon was a good club because there was such a um, such a unique culture, I suppose, to do that. Uh, so obviously rebirth in 2002. Um, as I would certainly say through those leagues uh, down in the sort of Ryman's and, and the Coco leagues, um, it, we were a big fish in a small pond. So in terms of rising through those leagues, although it was an incredible amount of hard work that went in by volunteers and people who um, you know gave so much to the club, it, we were attracting players from two leagues above uh, and they were playing in front of crowds of 4,000 people at home. Wow. Whereas when you went away, you were playing in front of 50 people, a man and his dog. So (laughs) traveling for those leagues wasn't the hardest part. I think that the hardest part's become in the more recent years where that's leveled out a little bit uh, in terms of what our budget is as a fan-owned club, which has got a glass ceiling on it essentially, Dave, because obviously Mm. there's no rich owner. Um, We only make money from what comes in through the door every Saturday afternoon. Um, That's become harder now. We've had to think outside the box and we've had to work harder than ever. We've had to professionalize. Uh, We've had to, you know, the club's evolved massively in the last few years and that's actually coincided a little bit with the first team manager coming in Neil Ardley who's an ex-player knows the the uh, the DNA of the club but also has, has helped sort of professionalize it because that's he's come from that background so as an academy we've been playing catch-up for all that time you know we, we yeah. started as we started as grassroots the, if I'm honest there was absolutely no need for an academy in terms of producing first team players traveling through, through those leagues there was no culture of youth but remember that back in the 70s and particularly the 80s and 90s, Wimbledon was uh, uh, had a had a hold over South London, really. It was producing players all over. And, and when it disbanded, obviously, Palace, Fulham, Chelsea, all of a sudden, they picked up that catchment area. Yeah. So it's had a, a rich history of producing its own players. And there's even still some players out there now who left the club in 2002 mm. and either went to MK or another London club who are still playing, Kieran Gibbs, for instance, and Alex McCarthy. Right. So there's plenty of people there. And I think it's uh, it's something the fans want. They want their own players because of the identity of the club, the, the culture of the club. We as an academy, we've always played towards that because it's such a unique story. Everyone kind of relates to it. Um and I think that's something that, um, you know, I feel like we've been able to do more so than other clubs in terms of playing on that story and using it to our advantage and having players who have risen through the pathway, who have that unique identity and who, when eventually they make their first steps onto that pitch, the fans truly identify with, you know, they're one of their own. And I think that's really important because the club was, you know, so ferocious in safeguarding its own uh, community in terms of uh, having a football club, you know. So, yeah, and, and then in the future, Dave, I suppose the, the one thing to mention really is that there's a new stadium coming in a couple of years' time. Brilliant. Um, the the objective for the club was always to get back to the Football League, which is what it's done, and get back to Merton, which is the borough. Um, and we're a couple of years away from that. Once we do that, obviously, then we're expecting our attendances to, to you know, be at least 50% higher because of where we would be. Um, and from there, then it's a bit of a game changer, really. We can start looking at how we would then make the next steps of our evolution. So yeah. that's exciting. That's exciting. Certainly a meteoric rise. And, and as you say, I think as much as some people criticize the academy system, it is important to have that academy in place as part of the community and, and the culture mm-hmm. around clubs. I think that's, there's a lot to be said for that. So you mentioned earlier the EPPP comes in and you guys were audited in 2013 for the first time. You're a Category 3 club under their system. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean for you guys in the academy game? Being category three, yeah. In terms of in terms of you know the advantages or disadvantages and the challenges yeah, that yeah. go with that, or you know how it looks for you guys. Um, I, you know, I think there's pros and cons. Obviously, I, I really, I think people get bogged down with the categorization system uh, massively. 
Um, naturally, there's a hell of a lot more money going in in Cat 1 and Cat 2 than there is with us. Sure. Um, and obviously, in terms of resources, that's hard for us sometimes. Um, we've had to and always have had, even before we were an academy, find ways of uh, having a USP, which has been more around our environment and, and the people that we we uh, have coaching our kids and, and working in the academy. Mm. Having less money, having less staff, having less facilities, I suppose, is, is one of the biggest things um, that being a cat three has a challenge with uh, we're in a hugely uh, competitive catchment area so everyone says that london's the best in probably europe and it probably is but there's yeah. so many clubs um that you know uh, want a piece of it and you know we've got clubs from uh, the north of england now trying to set up satellite centers and development centers so that's that's been hard and it's hard for us to compete because we don't have the resources for that even yourself and, and you know working at Fulham, you know we're, our training ground backs onto the one that you guys play <laughs> your, your weekend. I've been trying to grow the fence there for for years and years and years, so you guys stop <laughs> looking over it, you know. So it's it's hard within our catchment area for that, and um, I think there's a perception because of the categorisation system from uh, you know people, parents and players that oh gosh should I join a Cat Three and or you know it might not be as good as a Cat One or a Cat Two, and they look at the badge. That's I think natural that does happen. Um, there's less compensation for players uh, if they're taken away from us, uh, which they have been more recently. Um, so that's a challenge as well. We don't get quite as well rewarded for the development and the time that we put into the players uh, that end up progressing. It's been a challenge for us that the EPPP rules are applied to everybody. They're the same set of rules for Cat 1 all the way down to Cat 4. Um, but of course, we've got a hell of a lot re less resources to uh, work through those rules and abide to them. And, um, you know, I think that our staff, more so than other categories, end up doing one and a half jobs, mm. um, our full time staff especially, um, which is a challenge, you know, and, and it's a it's a bit of a labour of love in that respect, you know. Sure. Um, so I'd say so those are some of the, the main the main challenges. The perception thing is is frustrating for us, you know, because it's uh, we're producing players at Cat Three, and, yeah. and going to Cat Two is probably at least a million pound away for us, and it's not really realistic. It's certainly in the next yeah. ten years. And then actually, does it matter that much? Really, there's a bit more compensation for us. There's a bit more contact time with the players, but we're still producing players now under this system. Mm. And I would say that you know the the, the the pluses of it is that I think. Um, now it's been in place for whatever six years. People have become a little bit more wiser to it. I think parents and they understand now. Actually, it doesn't matter maybe quite as much as it used to to people. There is more opportunity potentially at a Cat Three club because obviously it's well documented how hard it is to become a professional footballer at Premier League level. Yeah. So I think people are starting to see it a little bit differently, and and um, you know uh, certainly I think clubs Cat Ones and Cat Twos trying to find talent from within Cat Three I think is attractive to them, Dave, because you know, we end up having quite a, um, a set of realistic values, I suppose, and players that are really, really hungry and have to work against probably the grain a little bit in terms of what their uh, peers are doing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that hunger is sometimes lost in Cat 1 and Cat 2 from players. And I think, you know, we've just sold a player who's uh, going up to Stoke and, and they commented it's really hard for them to find a player with that sort of hunger that this kid's got. Yeah, um, yeah. And because he, he's, he's fought against the grain, you know, for the last few years to, to get to where he's got to. And that's what I was going to suggest. I mean, first of all, you know, having played against teams from your club and, and been lucky enough to go in there and have a look at your environment. I mean, you, you guys have certainly got a quality of player in there. There's no doubt about that. But... You know, do you think there's you know some benefits to some of this adversity? I mean, there's a lot of discussion around the too much too soon debate. There's you know too many perfect surfaces all the time or perfect facilities. Is that yeah. really dumbing it down for kids? I mean, you're obviously seeing things. Have you got examples 
in, in the sense of players and both coaches as well developing um, as a result of perhaps those extra challenges. And you talk about that particular player with his hunger, but are you seeing it across the board? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I think we've. I think you end up having to embrace what you've got anyway, right? So the footballs aren't quite as good as the footballs next door, and mm. you know we have to we have to deal with that. Um, one thing that we've we've uh, always discussed, we we use a facility for the the foundation phase, and it's a harder astroturf. It's not uh, the old sand-based ones. It's like a, a one-up from that, but it's not 3G. The ball flies. You got to go down the control. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's good, and I, I love it, and I wouldn't change it. And when each of has come in in a few months' time, they may say to us, "That's not a 3G. That's not good enough." And I would strongly argue that we love our foundation players on that surface mm. because they've got to get the ball under control. They've got to really have a pass appreciation that they wouldn't have perhaps if they were on a 3G. And, sure. and I love that. Our pitches uh, are good, but they're not fantastic. Um, and again, the same stuff again. Like, you know, if if we're not playing on perfect pitches, well, that is realistic to what these kids are going to end up playing on, 99% of them in the future. Absolutely. At, at whatever level. So let's embrace it, you know. Um, and I think you're right. Players are given too much too early. Uh, we had an interesting debate with our head of coaching the other day who, who's been on a few courses and um, talking about, setting up um i suppose match realistic uh, training sessions you know sure. and uh we're looking at sort of what our near neighbors do and we've been to visit them and, and look at how you know they develop their players and we were commenting on the fact that their players seem to make really good decisions and they, they're really familiar with the pitch geography that they're they're on during the games and then we started thinking well what are they doing training wise well they're training in that area uh, they're playing passes over realistic distances they'll do on a Sunday because they've got the space. Um, they've got the numbers as well. They've got the, you know, everything else that they need. Whereas we're, you know, playing small-sided games, 7v7s on probably, you know, half of the space potentially that you would normally. So you get different outcomes from that, obviously. Perhaps we're better in tighter areas because of that, you know, and perhaps we're good at pressing the ball with lots of intensity. Mm. But actually we found, for instance, that, you know, players being able to open up and play a 30-yard pass at under 12s, um, they don't do quite as much in our training program, so that that's a challenge to us. You know, so there's there's definitely some pros and definitely some cons of it. I'd say higher up that you know uh, our players um, they're not pandered to, uh, mm. and we make we make a really big point of that. We want them to be mentally strong. We know what's ahead for them. They're not given everything, um, and there's no exceptions to that really. It's you know we're we're quite strong about that because we we genuinely believe that. Um, players who are, are given that entitlement, that's all that they know. And when they get into the real world, they're not going to have that. And it's going to be a massive disappointment to them. It's going to set them up to fail and potentially leave them with pretty low self-esteem as well. Mm. So we need to be realistic with our boys all the way through. Don't get me wrong. It's a really positive environment. You know? yeah, so yeah. We're, really, we're really good with the boys, but we don't bullshit. You know? So yeah. that's, that's kind of where we're at. Thanks for tuning in to the Player Development Project podcast. For the full conversation with this guest expert, head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com and check out the Masterclass Discussion section. Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.